Do you fear that your loved one will die? How can recovery help us live with the death of those we love? And what if that death was long in the past? Welcome to episode 210 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Penelope, Lorianne, Tony, Amber, Eric, Michelle, and Lucy. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Penelope, Lorianne, Tony, Amber, Eric, Michelle, and Lucy for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though if the recovery show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope you'll find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer and I'm your host today. I have a reading. This is from the book How Al-Anon Works, Part 2, Chapter 9, titled Surviving Personal Tragedy. In Al-Anon, I found a new family, a family where there is no abuse, neglect, betrayal, harsh criticism, or chaos, a family in which we are all free to be exactly who we are. This family has taught me that I am worthy of love and goodness in my life. It has given me love, support, and compassion, and without it, I don't think I would have survived the most devastating period of my life. It happened on a warm, sunny day in early July. I remember looking forward to the upcoming holiday festivities, the picnics, the fireworks, the family gatherings. Then the phone call came, informing me that my 17-year-old son had fallen from the back of a pickup truck and was crushed by oncoming traffic. He was pronounced dead at the scene. In an instant, the world seemed to disappear. My heart froze. I felt as if all the oxygen had left my body. I was vacant, gasping for one last touch, one last moment, one last word. I didn't want to believe it. Just that morning we had talked and laughed and I had said, have fun and be careful. Now he was gone and I felt empty. I thought my tears were going to engulf me and in a strange and comforting way, I hoped they would. I hoped this thing called grief would consume me so that I too could die and escape the pain. I didn't think I could survive and I was afraid that I would. By this time, I had spent about six years in Al-Anon listening to the personal experiences and new discoveries of others and sharing my own. I knew it was my refuge. For me, Al-Anon was a place where sharing was sincere and where I could find support, but now I wondered if anyone could relate to my loss and suffering. I had found, in the outside world, that a room would quickly clear if I spoke about my son's death. People did not want to hear about it. I felt horribly alone. It was worse when well-meaning friends or acquaintances offered platitudes or theories about where my son was now and with whom. None of it really mattered to me because all I wanted was to have my son back. I kept going to my Al-Anon meetings, but it did not share. One afternoon, the chairperson at my Al-Anon meeting chose the topic loss. I wanted to bolt from the room. I panicked, but something, perhaps my higher power, kept me seated. As members shared, my panic grew. I was positive no one wanted to hear my story, and I didn't know if I could bear to tell it. Then my turn came. Somehow, from deep inside, the truth poured forth. Sadness spilled out in tears, and I shared my anger, my despair, my hopelessness. Nobody ran out of the room. Nobody tried to change the subject. They listened, and they cared. I came face to face with my anguish, but surrounded by loving and supported friends, I knew I could get through this. The loving interchange sustained me. Members of our fellowship reminded me of God's unconditional love and that continuing 
to be aware of His presence would help me through the crisis. They encouraged me to be totally honest with God, sharing my innermost thoughts and feelings through prayer and meditation. I prayed for God's will and for the courage to go forward. The miracles and gifts of Al-Anon can sustain, guide, and heal all kinds of wounds, and mine were no exception. It wasn't easy, especially at first, but when I became willing to acknowledge my feelings, my healing began. Now, five years later, I have found peace and contentment. I no longer ask God why, nor do I blame myself. I now know that my son will live forever in my heart and in the hearts of the wonderful Al-Anon members who have met him through my story. So our topic today is living with death and recovery. And it's essentially a story told in three parts. The first part is, I've titled it, Living in the Wreckage of the Future, Dark Fantasies of the Worst that Could Happen. The second part is, When a Loved One Dies. And the third part is when we come into recovery and our loved one is already passed away. And again, for the first part, I want to start with a, a short excerpt from the book, How Al-Anon Works. This is part two, chapter 15, A Son's Imprisonment Teaches a Mother About Herself. How was I going to get my son to stop drinking and using drugs? That was all I could think of when I first came to Al-Anon. I was completely obsessed with him. When he was out of the house, I worried about where he was, who he was with, what he was doing. The sound of an ambulance's siren sent me into hysteria because I would imagine my son being rushed to the hospital after a terrible car accident. If it snowed, I would see him in my mind passed out on a snowbank, freezing to death. I couldn't function, couldn't read a book, make myself a decent meal, or even think about sleeping until he returned, and sometimes he didn't get home until dawn. That reading speaks to me. Because when my loved one was in her alcoholic drinking, I had those fears and obsessions. I guess, to some extent, I was lucky because she was mostly an at-home drinker. But there were times when I had those fears that could not be, that could not be relieved. We live in Michigan. Her family lives in Texas. And she would go to visit her family. She would fly to Texas, rent a car, and drive to where they lived. She once said to me that the airplane was her flying bar. And I certainly had observed this. We would get on the plane, and she would immediately order too many bottles of wine because they wouldn't bring her more than two at once. And as soon as they were gone, she would get some more. And I knew that when she was flying by herself that, well, I was sure that when she was flying by herself, this pattern would continue. And of course, then she would get to her destination and she would rent a car and she would drive on the highway. I was just positive that she was going to get into a wreck and kill herself. And even though God looks out for drunks or something, that never happened. I had that fear every time. I remember one time when she was flying back and I had driven to the airport to pick her up, and I was waiting at the baggage claim. This must have been after 9-11 when they wouldn't let us go into the into the concourse to meet our arriving passenger. And so I was waiting at the baggage claim, and she didn't show up. And she didn't show up. And she didn't show up. And I, I just didn't know what to think. I, I was panicking. Like, did she not get on the plane? Did she not get off the plane? Did something horrible happen? I tried to get the folks at the, the baggage claim to find out something for me, and they couldn't 
or they wouldn't, I don't know. And, you know, finally she showed up and, and she felt as if nothing untoward had happened. There's another reading here that I found. This is from the book Discovering Choices on page 68. I finally acknowledged that my wife was going to die if she did not quit drinking. It was extremely difficult to sit back and watch her spiral deeper into some sort of darkness I didn't understand, but I could accept that it was her decision, not mine. My son kept asking me to stop her from drinking. I tried without much success to explain to him why I couldn't do that. Now I don't attempt to explain, which avoids useless arguments and a considerable amount of frustration on my part. This reading also feels really familiar to me because there there did come a time when I didn't know if she was going to be able to stop drinking, when it seemed that all she had left to do in her life was to drink, and that if she didn't stop, it seemed like the only possible end was death. I don't recall my kids asking me to explain this thing, my kids asking me why I couldn't make her stop drinking. I think at that point they were just accepting what it was, or maybe they didn't know any better. I'm not sure which. And you know what? There were moments in the darkness when sometimes I thought maybe it would be easier. Maybe it would be easier if she did die. And that's, you know, that's hard to say, but that feeling was there. Living with somebody in active alcoholism or addiction is not easy. And sometimes we wonder, what if it was just over? One of my listeners, D, shared a story about her loved one who did die and about how she felt, D felt. Hi, Spencer, this is D, and I'm calling in to share about my experience with alcoholism and death. This is a tricky type of share. It's not my business to disclose the details of somebody else's life and lifestyle and their choices and what's not their choices. My intent is to share how I responded and how the situation affected me. The account of my experience is laden with judgment. And what I've come to learn is that letting go of my own judgment is what supports growth and serenity, not just in myself, but in those around me, especially the ones I'm trying so vehemently to change. I will do my best to keep the focus on me, yet explain what it was like for me then. Just to give a little background, this happened last year. I was traveling home from an out-of-town retreat, And with much ambivalence, I decided to call and ask my aunt and cousin if I could stop in for a visit. It had been about eight years. I did. To me, when we were growing up, she was like the big sister I never had. I always wanted to be close with her. And then as we grew older and her alcoholism progressed, and I watched that progress, my attempts were either to fit in And then my attempts were to change her or try and change her. Eventually, I became frustrated, resentful, and I disconnected myself. You know, there was a long time between 
our our contact, but we were we had been on speaking terms during that time. However, this was the first face to face interaction I had with her since being in recovery. To my dear cousin Trudy, with love and gratitude. You never really know when your last conversation with a person will take place. Of those who have passed in my life, I have many regrets about that last conversation. If I had only known, this would be the final one. On that snowy, cold April day, I had no idea this was going to be our last interaction. However, this time I do not carry such regret. I visited with Trudy just as she was, on God's terms, and I was emotionally present, despite the painful feelings that surfaced during the interaction with my beloved alcoholic cousin, a gift of this program, which I am grateful for. She was seated on the living room couch, her full-time bed. Walker was close by as she ranted on about how embarrassed she felt with her teeth blackening from the medications. Internally, I silently attributed, yes, judged, her dental issue due to the effects of long-term methadone use, giving me a reason to fault her, to be angry, and shut myself down emotionally. I caught myself, and I was able to use a tool for meditation which allowed me to notice this happening, acknowledge my feelings of anger and blame, and let these pass without clinging on to the hostile response. I remember feeling so heartbroken to see the debilitating impact that the long-term effects of alcoholism and addiction had on her. She was so meek and frail at 49 years of age, and her elderly mom was serving as her primary caretaker. She drove her to appointments to methadone clinic, for the occasional wine, and provided whatever other type of hands-on care was required during frequent acute flare-ups with sickness. I sat listening and observing. My heart was sinking with pity and sadness as she ranted on with accounts of her suffering. It also hurt very much to see my weary aging aunt provide such an exhaustive level of care and extreme caretaking. At that moment, I was also able to identify internally my own tendency to confuse love with pity and my own impulse to want to jump in and rescue. I could also feel the pity me dynamic being solicited from her to lure in the old caretaker D who would have so desperately jumped in to rescue. And being honest about my feelings, in addition to the sadness, there was a lot of anger. I was angry at my cousin for letting her disease progress so far and for not being willing to surrender herself to AA, a program that has worked for so many. Why not her? I was so angry at my aunt for being such an extreme enabler, especially in her aging years. I could see how exhausted and worn out she had been. Yet she had strong opinions and criticisms of Al-Anon dating back to the 1960s and was close to such an idea. 
Trudy's dialogue circled in an old familiar pattern of blame, shame, pity, and exaggerated storytelling. Amidst the hodgepodge of feelings, I also felt emotionally blackmailed and manipulated. She reminisced a lot about her past and good old days, and this was much at the expense of me, sharing stories that were shameful to me. Unlike in my younger years, now at age 45, with seven years of my own recovery work, I was now able to identify the tricky alcoholic manipulation of dialogue. I felt humiliated as she carried on, despite my tendency to set boundaries in hurtful situations. This time was strangely different. I remained silent and did not feed, embellish, or contribute to the conversation as she was trying to entice. I did not react or flee in defense. I observed her, and I observed myself. Perhaps the contrast of her being so physically debilitated and sick clarified that she had always been sick, and that this behavior was part of a disease. I also realized, as she continued to disclose this unflattering version of my story, from my teens to early 30s, and used it to glorify her own stories of partying from years past, that it was the very same behavioral dynamic that existed in our younger years. It felt like I had during my teens and early 20s, when she would lure me in to accomplice and enable her alcohol and drug use. For the most part, her lifestyle was unappealing to me, but back then I was supportive out of my own fear and insecurity. Finally, it was time to end the visit when she shifted gears and persistently began to plea for me to take her to my home, about five hours away, that she needed a vacation so that she could get better. Thank God for program tools and the permission to lovingly say no. It hurt and felt so messy inside sitting in the living room that day. Yet the gift came by staying and allowing that final visit to exist. A more mature part of me must be my higher power, not me alone. Knew I did not need to own, contribute, or try to change what was present. Perhaps this is what detachment looks like off paper and in practice. The situation still hurt, but I had the courage to sit with the feelings without fleeing, trying to fix or retaliate. Approximately six months later, there was an announcement that Trudy suddenly died. She was diagnosed with a rare late stage and aggressive cancer that took her only in a few weeks, and her final wishes were to die alone. My initial response was disbelief. I felt it was a cover-up, and that she had finally died from complications related to alcoholism and addiction. I was wrong. God has the plan, not me. Her final days were spent courageously dying in hospice, and like many forms of death, it was an ugly painful and aggressive one. I do not know which a worse course of death is, 
late-stage aggressive cancer, or end-stage alcoholism. I suppose in the end it does not matter. All I know is that I do not know what is best for anyone. God's plan turned out to be very different from the one I had imagined. My visual plan involved a death attributed to the disease of alcoholism per se, which would justify my anger and fault her for being sick with the disease of alcoholism. Ironically, God demonstrated through her how futile it is to blame a person for being sick in any form. It was only by accepting her just as she was that I could also experience a deep love and compassion in my heart for my cousin and her beautiful spirit. She suffered so badly for so many years, and all I can say is that my problem was my unwillingness to accept that it was God's plan for her to not recover from her addiction, and I need not understand why. I spent so many years angry and resentful that she did not want better. And in the end, she taught me how to let go of such futile, wasted energy. I will always love her and miss her unconditionally. In the end, she appeared as a teacher, giving me the opportunity to practice detachment, to say no, and to contrast how different it felt to use program tools in the same situations that occurred earlier in life. Maybe during her life she donned the role of the manipulative alcoholic cousin, but in the end God worked through her to test my skills and nurture my growth. She had a beautiful spirit, and I choose to honor her legacy with love, gratitude, and respect. And to support this share, I would like to include a clip from an AA speaker, Bob D., on surrender. He shares, it's an old Buddhist story. It kind of goes along with the theme of, all I know is that I just don't know. And it's not until I accept that that I can find serenity. You see, I don't know. The Buddhists have a story that it's about the wisdom to know the most important thing is that you'll never know. And it's about this little old Chinese farmer who, who's very poor. He owns, he owns, he doesn't own anything except a horse. It's his only possession. And he's allowed to live on this meager piece of ground in this hut and work the fields that are owned by a lord of the land who owns the land. And he has to tie the portion of his crop for the right to live there and work the soil. And him and his only son sit there. And they work these, they work this fields day in and day out. And, and one, one day his only horse, his only possession runs off. And now his friends and family come running over to console him, to tell him how terrible this is. You've lost your whole estate. This is awful. This is bad. And the little old man just shrugs his shoulders and says, I don't know if it's awful. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. And they think, you're nuts. You've lost everything. And he just keeps saying, I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. 
A couple days later, the horse returns right into the corral, leading a whole herd of wild horses. And now his friends and family and neighbors come running over to congratulate him. You're the richest man in the valley. This is wonderful. This is great. This is good. And he says, I don't know if it's good. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. And they look at him like, you're nuts. You don't think that's good? He says, I don't know. A couple days later, his only son is trying to break one of the wild horses and he's thrown and he's crippled and he can't walk and he can't work. And now his family and neighbors and friends come rushing over to console him, to tell him how terrible this is, that his only son is crippled. This is terrible. And the little old man shrugs his shoulders and says, I don't know if it's terrible. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. And they think, my God, this is your only son and he's crippled and you don't even think that's bad? And he said, I don't know. About a week later, the Chinese army came through the valley and forced all the young men to go and fight in a battle where none of them would survive and they couldn't take the son because of his broken leg. See, the little old man knew the most important thing he would ever know is that he doesn't know. And it is only when you think you know that you will never know. And when you know that you don't know, and you can take the position of a little old man, then maybe you've surrendered the only thing you ever have to give up in order to approach life itself and God like a child. Thank you, Dee. I feel so blessed that people like you are willing to share so deeply, so honestly, so that those of us who are still hurting, those of us who are in a similar place, can feel less alone, can feel that we are not uniquely broken. Thank you. Dee wrote to me, sent me an email after sending that share. Dee wrote, just to clarify, I'm not sure if my voice message was ambiguous. The best thing I can acknowledge is that I just don't know. When my cousin and I were in our early 20s, I was trying to help fix and change things for her because I was worried about the impact of her alcoholism on her children. I believed that I knew that her girls did not have a chance in the world to become healthy, functional adults. I was wrong. They are now young women and have truly blown me away with wonder and amazement. They are brilliant, emotionally healthy, functional, beautiful women with jobs, interests, healthy friends, respectful and respectable. Who was I to judge what their outcome would be? I did not know anything about what God's plan was, and like the villagers in the story, reacted, This is bad. In regard to my cousin's alcoholism, I was resentful by what appeared to me as a lack of interest in wanting recovery. I did not like that she was an alcoholic, and just like the village people, reacted with, This is bad. I did not know what God's plan was. My tendency would be to indulge in the idea that because she never recovered from her alcoholism before her death, this is bad, how tragic, how terrible. I did not know, and I still do not know, what her personal journey and relationship with God is, or what his plan was. Maybe it was bad that she was a destructive alcoholic, or maybe it was good that she was a teacher and gave us the opportunity to grow. I do not know. It feels odd to consider her ending good. However, I do feel grateful for the lessons that were provided through her. And thank you, Dee. In the third section of this episode, I had a conversation with Michelle, whose 
initial qualifiers died long before she came into recovery. Michelle was on vacation and graciously offered me up some of her time to share her message. Uh, Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I think you said you wanted to start with a little bit just of an introduction. Yeah. You know, I grew up in an, an alcoholic home but never knew it. You know, as a child of an alcoholic, I thought, you know, every little girl's daddy drank scotch in the morning and margaritas for lunch and, you know, more scotch for dinner. And it wasn't until my mid-20s that it began to be a problem and I realized that wasn't the norm. When I was 26, my dad had a alcoholic, drunken, blackout rage and committed suicide quite suddenly. He had never self-diagnosed as an alcoholic. You know, we didn't even really understand that he had a drinking problem. He just didn't really have a plan for living, and alcohol was his solution. And unfortunately, that was quite dramatic for my mother and I, and I was the only child. And my mom, you know, the good codependent in the relationship, had no stabilizing force and began to fall into drinking herself. And I spent two years in and out of rehab facilities with her, watching her spiral down while I was active in my Alanonism, trying to keep her sober and keep her alive. Um, they had recommended I go to a family program, but I didn't, you know, it, it wasn't for me because I wasn't the one that had a problem. She was the one that had the problem. If only I could get her to stick with the program, I could maintain one living parent. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, in 2010, after her third stint in a detox and rehab facility, and much, you know, beg, bartering, and pleading on my end, she started having seizures in her detox and was eventually admitted to the hospital where they told me, yeah, it's like, a, you know, lives as an alcoholic are often like a lifetime movie. You know, this was, of course, days before my wedding. You know, she's trying to sober up and I get a call that she's not going to make it out. Mm. Not only is she not going to make it to the wedding, she's not going to make it out. Um, they told me, you know, we don't know if she has two weeks or two months, but she's not leaving. Luckily, I was so far into my own denial that, you know, I was able to carry on my life as usual and didn't really spend a lot of time processing, you know, my new orphan status as someone in my mid-20s. But it wasn't until I married, you know, an alcoholic of my very own that I eventually did find recovery in Al-Anon. I was separating from him. He was using and abusing drugs and alcohol, and we had a small child. And I often say that my my ego was so big, so my bottom had to be so far. Hmm. You know, it really took, you know, God really had to, to push me into experiencing a, a certain, give me an opportunity to experience a certain level of pain before I was willing to seek a new plan. So it was when I was separated from my, my ex-husband now and desperate for change without any family or parents that I did find my way into Al-Anon and find the spiritual family that I never had. That was going on five years ago. And, and since then it's been, you know, blessing and miracle after blessing and miracle. You know, I can't speak enough about how this program saved my life and saved my daughter's life. So I feel like, though I can't protect her from anything in the future. I hope that I can, you know, give her better tools than I was given. And I think, one of the ways that Al-Anon has helped me process through, you know, losing both my parents and working the steps and learning about the disease of alcoholism, I, I kind of slowly came to realize that 
you know, it's a, it is a disease. I mean, in, in the literal sense yeah. and just like cancer or diabetes, you know, there are no guarantees. I find myself still now five years later getting monitoring some resentment towards AA or towards the rehab programs because I felt like they didn't do a good enough job keeping my mom sober. Mm. But I know when my al kicks in that, you know, nothing that anyone can do can keep an alcoholic sober if they don't want to. And even if they want to sometimes, you yeah. know, it's, yeah. it's a terminal progressive illness. And I heard in the rooms of al they say, you know, there's really only three options for the alcoholic. You know, it's long-term sobriety, incarceration, or death. It's unfortunate that that's the level of disease that we're talking about, but it is a disease in that way. And I think understanding it and that view of the program and being able to approach it as a mature adult instead of as an injured child, I can see that the family disease was running hard and strong long before I was ever born into it. You know, my parents were, you know, using the best coping skills that they had. It wasn't that they were doing anything to me or against me. You know, they were adults trying to live life without a better plan. They had the, so they say the mental obsession and the physical allergy that I'm very conscious of. I've earned that and my children may earn that too. It is something we pass on, but I'm grateful that I can at least recognize that it's a disease. It's a disease that unfortunately took both my parents. I don't take for granted that it might not take my grown children someday, which is a, a terrible thing to think, but I know that God has a bigger plan for me and a bigger plan for us. I know that God's way is the only way for me and it's the only thing I want. So I trust that my parents, they really couldn't have done it any other way, unfortunately. You know, that God knew that sobriety, long-term sobriety, wasn't something that they were able to manage and that this was sort of the more merciful path. You know, I often say that my mom's denial of how severe her disease was became a blessing in the end because up until her last moments, I mean, she was convinced she was checking out, you know, she called me and said, you know, have a, have a wheelchair ready. I'm coming to your wedding, you know, hmm. doctor get on the phone and say, you know, there's no way I'm leaving. But she was, her denial was actually a protection. And I often think the same thing about my dad too, is that, you know, the mental part of the disease was, what actually helped protect him from the pain that he was experiencing about his life and the effects of the illness on him. It's definitely not, if I would have written my life story, how I would have written it, but you know, it's like, I can't, you know, we don't regret the past nor wish to close the door on it. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have come to Al-Anon if I hadn't have had those experiences. And if I hadn't had my first husband and if I hadn't been here, you know, who knows where I would be. I mean, I, my life has been saved by this program and the life of my child. So I'm grateful for what God has given me and I'm grateful for what God has taken away. Where are you sort of in processing the, the lives of your parents? I think it's difficult to do as, you know, the adult child because you always have, or I always had an expectation of, you know, what my parents should be. But now that I am a parent, of two children, I can see how the expectations I put on them were so unrealistic. And I really appreciate the perspective that being, you know, a parent and being an adult has given me so much more compassion. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of our Al and I readings talk about, you know, we don't shame the alcoholic. They have plenty of that 
on their own. I was definitely guilty of that. I mean, I say with my mom, you know, I used the best tools I had to try to keep her sober, which was, you know, guilt, shame, manipulation, bargaining, name calling. I have had to make amends to her for all of that. Even though she's not here, the amends is living amends in my behavior that I won't ever treat anyone else that way, that I can recognize she was a sick person in a lot of pain. You know, she was never able to cope with the loss of my father through the, the you know, the sickness of her own codependency. Mm-hmm. I think the program has given me such a gift to have compassion for what they were going through and that it's not a, an illness or a lifestyle that anyone would choose. And that was the hard part, too, because I really felt like my mom was making a conscious choice, especially because she'd been in rehab programs and she had been in 12-step programs and she refused to go to meetings. She didn't think she needed them. So I felt like she knew what was going to happen. She knew enough to be dangerous. She would tell me she knew it was a disease and she couldn't control it. Mm -hmm. And I would get really frustrated because I felt like, that's true, but if you're diabetic, you don't go out and eat a bunch of cake either. But I've learned since then that it's it's not just the physical component. There's the the mental part of it too. How long was it that you were living with untreated whatever about about their deaths? Oh gosh, I, you know, and I had been. I mean, from the beginning, I had been in and out of therapy, and it had been recommended to me that I try Al-Anon, but of course. You know, I wasn't the problem. Yeah. So why would I need to go to meetings? They were the ones that had the problem. It was probably, gosh, probably, I want to say six years, five or six years before I finally found my way into the rooms of Al-Anon, at least long enough that I stayed, stayed for my own self, my own recovery. It wasn't even for my parents. I mean, it was for the fact that the life I had tried to build to not be like them was falling apart. And I said, these are the best tools I have. I don't want to do to my children what was done to me. You don't have them go through that. Mm-hmm. Friends of mine have have said, I think I've probably said it myself, that, you know, Al-Anon is the, the cheapest therapy you can find. But I think there's more to it than that. And I wonder if you have any reflections on the sort of the different way that being in a recovery program, being in meetings and so on, is different from therapy and how it, you know, helps you to recover in a different way. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's really amazing. And where I grew up in the program is near San Diego, California. It's not where we live now, but it is where I first worked my steps. And when I was there, they always opened the meeting with the reading, understanding ourselves, which is one of my favorites to say, because I walked into that first meeting and I heard that understanding ourselves. You know, this is our anger. This is our denial. This is our obsession. I said, how do these people know my thoughts? How do these people know my life? And that was something I had never gotten from therapy because it wasn't that peer-to-peer. Right. You know, it was somebody, it was, it was kind of this power dynamic where I was someone I respected and trusted. But to go into a meeting and to hear people say, you know, yes, me too. Yes, me too. And then I pretty quickly found a sponsor who had what I wanted. You know, she was a single mom. I was a single mom. And she had been in program for about six years. And, you know, to see how happy and joyous she was, even though her partner was still using, I said, you know, I want that. And I became willing to do whatever she did to get it. And she pointed me to the steps. She pointed me to the program. She introduced me to a higher power that was different than the God I had known. Because 
I came in pretty resentful of God and pretty angry. And therapy never really helped me resolve that yes, but why question that I had always had. I'm a good person. Why did this happen? You know, what did I do to deserve this? And Al-Anon taught me life on life's terms. It's not about me. It's bigger than me. Cunning, baffling, and powerful is the disease. And that's not something that's not a level of understanding that I got from therapy, which was incredibly helpful for its own way. But I think it was the yes, me too, that really sold me and really made me feel like I could find recovery and help there. I, I couldn't have said it better. The way that, that we connect our common experience in a meeting. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've found it anywhere else. Yeah. My reasons for coming into the rooms of al were pretty, you know, they were my own reasons. They were disingenuous. I often say I came in for my daughter, but stayed for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I had this little child, and I felt like the layers of denial. She was about eight months old at the time. Now she's almost six. She's going to start cigarettes. It's amazing. When I looked at her, it, it pulled back the layers of denial that I was living in, and I said, you know, she's innocent in all this, and I can't do it to her. Mm-hmm. What was done to me? I can't. I don't. I don't. And I said, but I don't know how to do it any differently. So I get kind of emotional at this part of the story. And so, to come into Al-Anon and to learn, you know, how to be a better mother and parent, and to show her a different way of living, and then to figure out that I was innocent in it, and I deserve something better. It was my codependent feeling for my baby that brought me in, but I was eventually able to heal everything for myself. Yeah, isn't that a miracle? Oh, God, thank God for that. It really is. Well, I want to thank you for taking a little bit of time out of your vacation to uh, to talk to us today. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Wonderful. After a short break, we will continue with our lives and recovery where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and our meetings. Our first musical selection was suggested actually some time ago by Claudia. She writes, Hi Spencer, I listen to your show while I travel for work, and it has given me much needed company, serenity, and comfort as I grieve the death of my daughter, who passed away last month as a result of a drug overdose. My song is Amazing by Aerosmith, which describes the moment of clarity when we know there's hope for our recovery. And I, not Claudia, chose a few lyrics to share with you. It's amazing, with the blink of an eye, you finally see the light. It's amazing, when the moment arrives, that you know you'll be all right. It's amazing, and I'm saying a prayer for the desperate hearts tonight. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives and recovery, what's happening in our meetings and our lives this week. And I guess it's my life because I'm solo right now. It's actually been a couple of weeks. I was traveling. I, as I think I've said, I was a resident assistant at a leadership school for youth. It was a week-long program based in my faith with 26 teenage youth and a combination of adult and youth staff leading and teaching. It was a deepening experience for me. It, it was both difficult and amazing and fulfilling. It was exhausting, 
and inspiring. We were working each day from basically 8 in the morning till 10 at night. So there's the exhausting part. We came together as strangers. Some of us maybe knew each other. Many of us didn't. To form a community for the week, we tried to come together in humility and honesty and love. There came a point in the week where it appeared that some of the young people had been deliberately hurting another. And we, as the staff, reacted to that perception. We called everybody together. We basically said, we need the people who engaged in this behavior to speak up. Because we assumed that harm had been done. We knew that one of the the youths was feeling hurt. And we assumed that the harm had been deliberate. As it came out over the course of the day, this apparently was not true. And the people who had been effectively accused felt hurt. This took a while to come out. And eventually we were able to hear each other in community and in love and to make what amends we could. And to me, that's just, it really shows for me how that process can work in my life. And it can work in the lives of people who, you know, are not in a 12-step program. If we, if we come to it with, with our best intentions and with our best selves. For me, it was basically a full day travel in each direction. On both the way there and on the way home, I picked up another member of the staff, a young person, about halfway there. And so on the way back, we had about six hours in the car to sort of talk about what had happened, how we felt about it, what we had learned from it. And I was really grateful for that opportunity for me at age 60 to share equally with a a colleague at age 17 and for us to each learn from each other. It was a great week, but by the time I got back, I was, as you might imagine, exhausted and was just not up to make a podcast last week. And so it's been two weeks. I'm happy I did it. And I'm happy to be here for you today. We welcome your thoughts, your feedback. You can join our conversation. Please leave us a voicemail or send us an email. You can call and leave a voicemail at 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. And if you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at therecovery.show. If you want to share your experience of living with death and recovery, it's not too late. You can call. You can send an email. Please join our conversation. All the information about The Recovery Show is on our website at therecovery.show. That includes notes for each episode, links to the music that we talk about, and links to, to other things that we mention. And I'm going to take a short break before looking at the mailbag, at your feedback. And Tim sent a poem. He writes, I recently discovered the show, and I have to say it's been a huge help for me these last few weeks. I've only just come to the terrifying realization that I might be living with an alcoholic and that I have no clue how to deal with it. I've been to two Al-Anon meetings so far and plan on getting a sponsor as soon as possible. In the meantime, I'm binging this show. I've been really struck by how you incorporate songs into the episodes, and it has inspired me to explore my feelings at this moment through similar means. 
These words came to me as I was driving home today. I wanted to share, and perhaps there's someone listening that will find these thoughts and images familiar. It's titled Great Escape. A silent dream, awakening, I cry for you, I cry to you. A nightmare scream, she is unseen, I am listening, I'm listening. A solitude, an empty room, I promise you, I promise you. Will I sleep again? Will I sleep again? Will I sleep? I can lie awake, I hesitate, my great escape, my great escape. might expect with two weeks off, we've got a fair number of emails. Holly wrote with a topic idea. Hi, thank you so much for all the work you put into this show. I've been listening to The Recovery Show for some time now. It's helped me so much, especially since I have four very small children and it's hard to get to a meeting with childcare. My question is, if there's been a podcast about envy and essentially the hurtful things we think about towards others, and sometimes even wishing they didn't get good things. I come from a very critical family where not much positive things were said. I've grown up with the feelings of jealousy and always feeling on this ladder of better or worse, usually worse, than others. This has caused me to hold back from so many people and so many events in my life. I would love to hear something about this. Thank you, Holly. And and thanks, Holly. I relate so much to the the latter that I'm either above or below, feeling envious of those above. Allison says, listen to my first podcast yesterday. Alana never stuck. This is the one for me. Thank you again for your honesty. Got another note. Thank you for all the talks posted. This one struck a particular chord with me and was so helpful. Many thanks. I listened to it in the middle of the night while I couldn't sleep, sharing a room with a snorer on pilgrimage to Lord France. God works in mysterious ways. I have to say, yes, it does. And it, it's so amazing how this podcast can reach to so many people in so many places. Tracy wrote in about episode 112, which was titled, Do You Drink? And it's really hard for me to believe that that was 100 episodes ago, almost, which is almost two years ago. Tracy writes, good morning, Spencer. First, I'd like to thank you for your messages. I'm learning more every day about recovery in Al-Anon. This morning, I listened to episode 112. What a breath of fresh air. I am new to the program. Well, actually, I'm just back again and starting from scratch. I'm married to my third alcoholic husband. I'm a slow learner. I loved your talk today. I, too, am a social drinker. My husband is not. I often wonder how in the world he can continue to drink straight out of a vodka bottle hours after our evening out or in is over. Mind-boggling. I am called the alcoholic. I am the reason for the compulsion to drink so much. I am the problem. I am the trigger. You name it. I do know all of this is nonsense, but it still bothers me. I don't see any light at the end of that tunnel, and our home life is a train wreck. I just wanted to say thanks and let you know that this topic needs to be talked about more. At least, that's my opinion. I will continue to listen, read, and reach out. Have a great week, Tracy. And thanks, Tracy, because that was a difficult episode for me to do, and I'm just grateful that it has touched you. Emily shares about a connection made. Spencer, I was in my 20-week study meeting on intherooms.com tonight, 
and I was up on my webcam doing service by doing a reading at the beginning of the meeting. I received an instant message from someone in the room asking me if I was the Emily from the ACA episode of The Recovery Show, because that's what brought her to the meeting. I told her how very blessed I was to hear that the episode brought her to the meeting and hoped she got something out of it. What an incredibly powerful two-year podcast is to reach her all the way in California from me in Indiana through you in Michigan. What an amazing time we live in for recovery. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. It has blessed me tremendously, Emily. I'm going to say again, thanks, Emily, for for doing that episode with me. Um, And I'm glad it continues to reach people. Emily also left us a voicemail about another episode. Hey, Spencer, it's Emily. I wanted to call in about your most recent episode, number 209. It was the talk from Mary Pearl. Mary Pearl is my absolute favorite Al-Anon speaker. She is so funny. And every time I hear one of her leads, I always think, you know, if Mary Pearl can recover in Al-Anon, then by God, I think anybody can recover in (laughs) Al-Anon. She makes me laugh so hard. Specifically in her lead, I had never heard this one, so I really appreciated that. But what really struck me was her her story about dropping that fern or her husband dropping that fern. And she was talking about communication and making amends. So I was thinking about that and how Al-Anon has really taught me how to do that. You know, I've mentioned multiple times that I grew up in an alcoholic home So communication was not something that I was taught. I wasn't taught how to do that. So if I put myself in Mary Pearl's position, you know, I would have done pretty much the same thing, except I wouldn't have had all that anger. I would have pouted or sulked, and I would have been really mad, and, you know, I would have made him pay for that just by sulking and and being angry that way. Because I just didn't have any other tools. I didn't have any other tools to communicate how I was feeling. So that was really interesting. It was interesting to put myself in that position. So when I got into Al-Anon, I got divorced shortly after I got into Al-Anon, and then I started learning some tools, and I got into a new relationship, and that really, I was able to use the tools that I was learning in that new relationship, and that was really cool to be able to learn these tools. I just learned a new acronym the other day. It was JADE justify, argue, defend, explain, one of the things I learned in my new relationship was that I did that all the time, justify, argue, defend, explain. When my significant other would try to express feelings, I would try to justify, argue, defend, explain. So I had to learn to just shut up, listen, and let the other person explain their feelings and just let them let them express how they feel and just be quiet. And then I also had to learn how to make amends when I did things that were wrong. I had to learn how to just say, I'm sorry. So I really appreciated that talk by Mary Pearl. Thank you for putting that on the site, and thank you for your service. Bye. Anne wrote, I feel compelled to email you because I cannot just sit by and enjoy every episode of your podcast without saying something about how much I love it. I started at the beginning, and uh, and I'm on episode 90 at this point, but I only discovered the recovery show a few months ago. I listen to your shows back-to-back when I can at work and each night before I go to sleep. I feel like I know all of you so well, especially you, Spencer. By the way, you sound just like Ross from Friends, and I'm sure I'm not the first one to tell you that. 
I really enjoyed the start of the show with Swetha and Kelly, but now that we've been introduced to Ruth and some of the other guest co-hosts, I truly enjoy them too. I was raised a Uper Spencer. I'm sure you know what that is. The little town I came from in Upper Michigan was loaded with bars, and my dad was well-known in all of them. About 30 years ago, I went to ACA, but recently started going to Al-Anon meetings. I'm in my 50s and have been married to a wonderful man for 23 years. However, since he retired, his alcoholism is showing. Like my dad, he's a mushy drunk, so I feel he only hurts himself, but in the wide scheme of things, I realize that his drinking is also hurting me. I feel a little different than a typical Alanonic because I'm not the people-pleasing, empathetic type. I definitely take care of myself and don't need to be told to do so. My husband appears to be more of an Alanon than an alcoholic because he's an incredible people-pleaser and hates controversy and will only say and do what he feels you want him to say and do. I try not to take advantage of that, but still have had my turns at manipulating his behavior to my advantage. For example, if he drinks... I will go buy something expensive the next day and say, You said I could last night, lol. I don't do that often. I never felt very good after doing that. I will say that since I've started Al-Anon about six months ago, his drinking is less frequent, but he still drinks till he passes out when he does drink. I'm learning methods to detach with love, which really helps both of us carry on with our lives. He is older than me, so I've come to terms with the fact that he may never stop drinking. He is not in a program. The reason I'm writing now is because in one of the most recent episodes I've listened to, you mentioned the book The Five Love Languages and what an eye-opener it was for you. I've read this book several times and was really enlightened with the content. Your example with your wife and how you guys speak love was a little different than I interpreted the book. My best example when I'm explaining the book is this. For years, I would buy my mother-in-law expensive gift certificates only to find them lying on her counter expired a few months later. One day, I asked her, why she hasn't made an appointment for her massage or her pedicure, and she told me, oh, I don't have time to do that stuff. After reading The Five Love Languages, I realized that what my ma-in-law does for people she loves is acts of service. She still cleans her 60-year-old bachelor son's house and still worries and takes care of things for all her children. So I realized that instead of gift certificates, if I wanted to show her how much I love her, I should just go visit her one day and start dusting or help her clean her house. That's her love language. My husband likes me to spend quality time with him. It's not my style to hang around while he's mechanicking on the tractor, but I know he enjoys that. So every now and then, to show how much I love him, I hand him tools while he's working on machinery and we just talk. My love language is positive affirmation. Each day when I go to work, I hand out genuine compliments because I don't feel we do enough of that in our society. When I get a compliment back and I know it's genuine, I can float on that for days. That's how much positive affirmation means to me. I'm sure it's an Al-Anon trait because we don't feel we're good enough or perfect, but it's my love language. Learning those love languages lets me understand many people in my life, not just my spouse, but friends, coworkers, etc. Whatever they do to show love to others is their love language, and they would love to receive that from others too. Well, there's my two cents. I'm glad to finally break the ice and send you an email. I'm anxious to get caught up on the episode so I can just listen to one a week. I really do enjoy what you're doing and believe you're truly making a difference in many lives. I know you have in mind, so keep up the good work. Anne from Idaho, and, and thank you. Thank you, Anne, for that and for bringing back the uh, the five love languages to my attention. I think about it every now and then, but really had forgotten how important that was to me in understanding how my wife and I relate to each other. Sujata had a question, writes, Spencer, as usual, I'm grateful for your podcasts. In the 208 show, you spoke about links to other podcasts 
Would you please share them on my email? I could not find them in the podcast. I'm realizing every day that the family disease of alcoholism has been so deeply ingrained in me and my daughter that I keep on going backwards in my relationship with her every day. Is there any way to get ACA help or information in India? The podcasts are helping me to recover my disease, and I feel there's so much to learn from Alanon. Thanks, Sujata. And I replied the links to podcasts. So if you're on a computer, they're going to be on the right-hand side of the screen. But if you're on a phone or probably a tablet, you need to scroll almost all the way to the bottom. And there's a heading, Podcasts We Like, and there's another one, Websites We Like, that link off to some other places. And I keep learning about new recovery podcasts and websites, and I don't have time necessarily to check them all out. So if you've found one that you really like that we don't have a link to, let me know so that I I can go check it out and, and maybe make a link to it as well. I really don't know about ACA in India. Suggest that Google may be your friend there. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses which run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Penelope, Lorianne, Tony, Amber, Eric, Michelle, and Lucy did. And thank you again so much for your support. The last song selection that I chose for this episode is titled The Drugs Don't Work by The Verve. And you can listen to it at therecovery.show slash 210. A few lyrics here. Now the drugs don't work. They just make you worse. But I know I'll see your face again because baby, oh, if heaven falls, I'm coming too. Just like you said, you leave my life. I'm better off dead. Thank you for listening and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you're facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.